Well, good morning, everyone. Another glorious day. Going to be a glorious week around here. It's going to be a crazy week around here. Yes, we are, as Juan probably announced, we're entering the VBS season. You know, I've got to come up with another acronym for VBS, like the most craziest week of the year. But, um, you know, this year, you're truly is involved with it. And uh, I think I'm going to be the captain of one of the flights that are taking off. And, uh, you know, I used to be a police officer, so I have all my old gear still. So I'm going to try to make that look like a, a captain's uniform or a pilot's uniform. But anyway, uh, I am like number one fan, the number one fan of VBS because actually, and I know many of you know this, but that's where I was introduced to the gospel the very first time. And I was only about five years old, man, and I can remember it like it was yesterday. I was down at that little tiny church on the corner here. It's a little Baptist church, and this old elderly woman with this beehive hairdo, you know, was sitting there. And I, ne- I had never heard that Jesus loved me, died for me. I knew we had something, a big book that was on the coffee table called a Bible, but that was it. And she started talking to me about this guy dying on the cross for me and blood was coming down his face and he's hanging on there. She totally freaked me out. And uh, I remember running out of the place. And well, it was like me and five other kids. I think they ran too. But I ran home and I said, Mom, don't make me go back. There's this weird woman killing people on popsicle sticks. Man, I just don't want anything to do with it. But still, I'm sure our, our, Bible, our, our VBS teachers don't represent the Lord that way. But, um, but it, it stuck with me. It just stuck with me that there was a man that died for my sins, man. And, uh, and I just, I, I don't know. I think it, just that little seed, if we can plant that in the, the lives of our children at such a young age, that can give birth to so much. And so, you know, I don't know why I'm, I didn't even plan on going off on VBS. I just think it's so important for us collectively as a church to stand behind it. Does it make sense? So, listen, if you don't mind, go in your neighborhood, bring out some kids. I know this is probably freaking the VBS women out now because they're all ready for a certain amount. But bring more anyway. We'll figure it out. Amen, guys? All right. With all that being said, let's just study the word together. Luke chapter 7, if you'll turn there. If you're visiting, we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus. And the number one reason for me anyway, uh, desiring such a task is because I want to know him more. I want to know him in a deeper, intimate way. Well, why, Harry? It's because, I don't know, the more I get to know him, the more I get to worship him. The more I get to see his greatness. And it, I don't know, guys, I'm not trying to say that just studying the, uh, the life of Jesus, uh, Jesus is just a duty to do. But there are so many benefits doing what we're doing, going through the, the Gospels, you know, from the birth of Christ or even the announcement of his birth, all the way till we see him um, encouraging the disciples to go out and make disciples, go into all the world. And so, you know, I, I don't know how many lessons. I, I stopped counting around 30-some. We've been doing this for 30-some weeks now. And I think uh, if my timeline is right, we're about halfway in the middle of his ministry. We had just finished off, you know, the Sermon on the Mount. And then that study that we did, I think, last week about John the Baptist. And, you know, and, and again, this, it seemed like the theme there was about doubt and how we deal with doubt. Uh, so starting with verse 36 of, of chapter 7, pardon me, I just got to 
Luke 7, verse 36. We'll read our text together and pray together. It says that, And one of the Pharisees desiring him that he would eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's home, he being Jesus, and he sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster box of ointment. And she stood at the feet beholding him, or behind him, and she's weeping, and began to wash his feet with, with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when Jesus, which was bidden, uh, him saw it, he spake within, uh, within himself, the Pharisee, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that touches him, for she is a sinner. Jesus answered and said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to, to say unto thee. And he said, Master, say on. There, were, there was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence, the other 50. And when, he had, and when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him the most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said to him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said to Simon, What a beautiful picture. See, seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house, and thou gavest me no water to wa- for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou givest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, had not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil, thou didst not anoint, but this woman has anointed my feet with, o- with ointment. So wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at the meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? He says to the woman, Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. Would you be kind to stand with me just once more, guys, and we'll pray together. Father God, we thank you again, Lord, that you have given us this word. And again, for most of us here, God, we do not take it lightly. That even before we open it, there's due consideration. There, the, what are we going to receive today, Lord? What, what are you going to reveal through your Holy Spirit? Lord, I just pray, God, that if there's anyone here today that's, for whatever reason, just not able to connect with what you're doing this morning, I pray that they would be able to lay all those things at your feet this morning. And for such a time as this, that you would anoint their minds and their hearts to receive your holy word. So again, Holy Spirit, we just invite you to be our chief instructor Be our rabbi, as it were, Lord. Be our pastor, our instructor. We so need you, Holy Spirit. For without it, this would just be just another book. But with you behind it and anointing it, it becomes the living word of God. 
We so love you, Father. We love your Son. We love the Holy Spirit. We just pray now for just that anointing again in Jesus' name. And everyone said together, Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. For me, guys, I I think this is one of the most emotional stories, one of the most emotional scenes in the Bible. Now, probably I'll read another and say just the same thing about it. But for some reason, this story touches my heart like none other. What you have here is a great sinner, but she's expressing a greater love and a greater gratitude towards Jesus. When we look at verse 36, it's very apparent that that establishes the context of what's really happening. So would you please just look at verse 36. It says, one of the Pharisees desiring him that he would eat with him, which is a very odd thing here in in that culture. He went into the Pharisee's house and he sat down. Now, we're told later on that this, this Pharisee, his name was Simon, and he is inviting Jesus into his home. And uh, we know that this Pharisee or this group, the Pharisees, is a very religious group. We know that this man is a, not only a very religious man, but he's very highly, highly esteemed in that area. And uh, among the Jews and among Israel, there was only about 6,000 Pharisees in total. Throughout all of Israel, only 6,000. It might seem like a large number, but when you look at that whole nation... That's not that many. It's, a, it's an elite group. It's a religious group. They're known for their attempt to become holy, uh, at least outwardly anyway. They are known as separatists. They, they, they want to be viewed as, as just separate from the world. Um, they're known for their legalism. They're known for their hypocrisy. And they're also known for their self-righteousness. Um, no small thing then to be invited into a home of a Pharisee. Now, Jesus already had been accused of dining and, and uh, enjoying the company of the Pharisees, um, not the Pharisees, of the publicans and the sinners. If you remember, it says that he had become friends of publicans and sinners. You know, but in order, and I think this is on Jesus' part, but in order to show that he does not discriminate, that he's not a respecter of person, not only will he go into a home of a publican who is greatly despised or a sinner who was totally rejected in their culture, he's even willing to go into a home of a Pharisee, a very religious group. And I love that because from the very beginning, Jesus displays that God is not a respecter of person. No matter what kind of depravity we might have been brought up in or very religious um, setting, he will still come and he'll still want to dine with the likes of everyone. Amen, guys? Uh, So no small thing to be invited. Now, if you'll notice, and I'm just briefly going, I'm not reading these texts, but from verse 37, uh, I'm sorry, 37 to 39, again, what we see, this picture, Jesus is eating and enjoying a meal in this house. But in verse 37, he is approached. Now, she, he is approached, again, a woman, but also called a sinner. Verse 39, again, we're just establishing the context. Uh, we know that she's more than just a sinner. 
Simon, this Pharisee, thinks, well, she's notorious. She's known everywhere. She is a defiled person. She is known as a great sinner, you see, in that region. So in Simon's mind, uh, no one claiming to know God, no one claiming to be a, a, a man of God would ever allow a person such as this woman to ever come in contact with him. Because he is a rabbi, he is a religious man, he is a, a prophet, he is of that elite status, maybe not a Pharisee, but still no one of that caliber would ever allow a woman like this to ever touch him or, even, or not even to come in his area, the, into his presence. Um, in that culture, you wouldn't sit down. You wouldn't go about talking with prostitute because in that culture, it might have been very hip, um, uh, very uh, hypocrisy in a hypocritical way, but they, they considered themselves a very moral nation. And so in their culture, once again, they would not just sit down and throw out words like whores or prostitutes or harlots. They would always use this word, well, you know that gal, she is a... She's a sinner. Or you might hear, no, that girl is a great sinner. And meaning that she has lost respect, any kind of respect from anyone in society that is of a moral culture. Now that establishes the context of what's really going on here. And I hope, now I'm not saying mind's eye picture like we're in TM, but I hope you have a nice picture now what's going on. Uh, uh, in that in that house of Simon the Pharisee, look at verse thirty-seven with me. It says, "Behold, this woman in the city, which was a sinner, she she knew that Jesus sat at meat, that he was at a meal in the Pharisee's home, and so she brings an alabaster box of ointment. Now, this is a very costly, costly um, ointment." Some have said this is, might even be a spike nard of some sort, you know. Uh, very expensive, it has to be imported, you know. And what this shows us, that what she is presenting to Jesus is the most valuable possession she has ever owned in her life. The most valuable thing mentally, uh, um, physically, she has this thing and she just wants to present this to him, she brings it to him in 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 order to pour it upon him. Is her intention? Now, this this again, this ointment was used also to kind of give you a a picture uh, as an investment. It, it would be equivalent um, to to us investing in gold or silver or coins that you want to invest in because later on you know it will have a greater value. And for her, it, for somehow she got, she has this, this valuable possession. Where did it come from? Was she always a great sinner? Was, was maybe, was she ever raised in a home where there was normality, where there, where there was a mom and a dad, and then the dad wanted to invest this into his daughter's life as a dowry? We don't have all the information. All we know is this is very valuable to her. But she is so willing to come into an area where she knows she is not invited or even even would be welcome. And yet she comes with the intention to pour every last drop out to anoint him. 
And what comes to mind is how little I pour out when it comes to worship, when it comes to service. What do I have that's so valuable that I'm going to just keep it to myself and hoard it? It's a beautiful picture here of, of a woman maybe possibly giving away a, a wedding gift. But she has made this decision. And in most, most likely, it, during this course of her life, she gave up on the idea that she would ever be married. Who would ever take a woman like this? Who would ever say for better, worse, richer, poorer, with such a hideous background? But she's thinking in her mind that possibly... He would. That Jesus would receive her. And embrace her. Just the way she is. But I want you to notice something in verse 38. Before she could even attempt to wash him or to anoint him with this oil. She totally loses it emotionally. Totally loses it. Look what it says in verse 38. And stood at his feet behind him, weeping. Literally, the word means she's convulsed. She's convulsing. She begins to wash his feet with her tears. Why? Did she come with the purpose to wash feet? I want to suggest to you, and I cannot be dogmatic about this, no. A lot of you have been taught that she came in purposely to wash the feet of Jesus. I don't think so. And it's okay to have either or opinion. But she begins to wash his feet with tears. She did wipe them with the hairs of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. I do not believe that she came in with the intention to come up behind Jesus. To convulse so um, strongly or severely where there's a flow of tears. Enough tears to wet his feet. Then to see what she's done, to kneel down, to then take her hair, and then to wipe, and then to kiss his feet. I it just seems to me that she, that's not the purpose of why she did that. Let me just jump to another thought as well. This kind of woman is not a, the kind of woman that would wear her sleeves or her emotion on her sleeves. She's not considered to be a frail woman of any kind. She is a hardened woman. She has, her heart is hard. And she does not fall apart in, the, in front of men. In fact, most likely she despises men just at the sight of them. You just see her coming up behind Jesus with this kind of emotion. Now let me again paint another picture for you. As she comes into Simon's house, most likely she's walking into a courtyard, not a room. Most of the Pharisees were very wealthy and they would own a courtyard. And inside the courtyard, there was a, a triclinium. A triclinium was a horseshoe table that would be very low to the ground. And the way they would eat is they would prop themselves against the low table with their feet extended outward. The table is probably only this high off the ground. 
maybe 18, 20 inches high. Do you remember the Last Supper? It said the beloved John would lean his head against the breast of Jesus to ask him a question. See, John would have been right next to Jesus, facing the triclinium, facing the, the... And he would lean his head against his breast. And John's feet's out this way, Jesus. And all the way around the table, this horseshoe-shaped table, would be people ripping pieces of bread off, dipping it in oil, and in the different spices, and they would eat. That was the kind of meal that she, pardon me, that Jesus was sitting at. And here comes this woman coming up behind him and approaches him. She is weeping so hard that the quantity of her tears begins to fall down on Jesus' feet and to wet them. She's sobbing. This is a real woman experiencing a real encounter with Jesus. This isn't just an emotional head trip. This isn't something that's just, you know, sort of like, hey, I got this idea. Let me go and anoint Jesus. This was an encounter with Jesus that was so real that when he, when she finally put his eyes on him, she lost it, man. And she is weeping and she begins to wet his feet. I think what's really happening is something that's coming from the heart. And notice, too, by the way, she never says a word the entire time. All you hear is her sobbing. And I think everyone else in that room, around the table and around the walls, I'll explain that in a minute, all they heard, too, was this woman weeping. It's an encounter with Jesus. And it's an encounter from the heart, not just an emotional head trip, or some duty that she thought she, that she would kind of perform. She doesn't say a single word. Maybe she didn't even intend for this event to turn out this way. Maybe she had no idea that she was going to weep this hard when she finally set her eyes on him. But all of a sudden as she's crying and with these amount of tears, the quantity of tears, it begins to fall on Jesus' feet. And because of the verses after this, Jesus' feet had not been washed and they are still filthy from the dirt of the road. And now she sees that her tears are, is only making it more of a mess for him. What, the, what men and women had to walk through in the streets of, of, of Capernaum, probably in that area, in that area, the, their, feet, their feet were filthy. And that's why it was the duty of a slave to wash their feet before they entered into the house. They were not allowed in their custom to wear their shoes in. Jesus is in this man's house with dirty feet. And this woman's tears begin to fall on his feet. And now all you see is streaks of mud down Jesus' feet. That's what's happening here. I know we have a lot of really weird ideas about biblical stories, but this is what's happening. There's a mess on Jesus' feet right now. She's not prepared. She didn't bring anything. If she was going to wash his feet, she would have brought a towel. She would have bought a basin of water. She would have been ready to wash his feet. She had no idea she was going to wash his feet with her very tears. She kneels down. Now listen. I, I don't know. Of course you never did. But 
Just think, ladies, how hard it would to be to wash a person's foot that's muddy with your hair. It's impossible. You could have never done it. You would have only made it worse without the right cleaning things. And she cleans off his feet the best that she can. And that what blows my mind with everyone looking on, she doesn't get up and apologize. She just says, look, I didn't mean it to work out. She starts to kiss his feet for crying out loud. You talk about a real woman who really wants to worship. She cleans off his feet. She starts to kiss his feet. It's just to me a sign that she loves him, that she wants to worship him. And I'll tell you this, guys. This is a woman who before she met Jesus thought she was totally rejected from society. But in meeting Jesus, her life changed. What prompted her to take this action? What prompted her to come into this this, uh, Pharisee's home, to bring in this ointment, to anoint this Jesus? What was it? Was it possibly she heard a message on forgiveness? Did she hear Jesus teach somewhere and then hope began to just take birth within her heart? For this woman, there was no heart within the religious system. There was no hope within the word that was being taught by the Pharisees in this religious system. No hope. There was hope, but not in the interpretation of their word, their law. Maybe she was a part of the crowd that heard the Sermon on the Mount. She would have been on the outside of the crowd. She would not have been welcomed inside the crowd. But possibly she heard this. All you that are weary. All you that are heavy laden. Got a burden? I could see her going, a burden? Oh my God, you don't know the burden I'm carrying. Well then come to me. And I'll give you rest. See, that's what's so good, following the order, the chronological order of Jesus. This is right after the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe she just heard another message from... We don't know. All we know that hope started to well up in her heart. Now, notice here, this is, all, this is all unfolding right before this Pharisee's eyes. And yet he doesn't get it. Not only does he reject the woman, he also proceeds to reject Jesus as any kind of prophet or man of God. Again, he would feel that if this man was a man of God, if he was a prophet, if he was just even any decent rabbi... He would not allow this to take place. 
Again, verse 39, the Pharisees which bidded him saw him. He spake within himself. If this man was a prophet, he would have known what kind of woman this was and that he and this woman touched him. She's a sinner. Simon is thinking this. I'm sure of it. Why doesn't he stop her? Why doesn't he take this opportunity and make a lesson to all the Pharisees? And by the way, mannerisms and customs also teach. Listen, look up here for a second. Simon, a wealthy man, having a courtyard, it's open invitation. If you had heard in that little community that Simon the Pharisee just invited a well-known rabbi, you were welcome to come in and stand around the walls of the courtyard, not to eat, But you are allowed to listen. Sometimes it was just for entertainment. Sometimes it was for enlightenment. If he would invite someone like Gamiel, the great educator, then people would come in. What does Gamiel have to say about that? And now they would just listen. And now that crowd is watching this whole thing. And Simon, he just doesn't get it, man. Verse 39, we see that he's speaking within himself and he's reasoning in his mind. So in verse 40, Jesus answers and says unto him, Hey, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And Simon says, and then uh, again, the master says, say on. You know, it's amazing to me that uh, God knows our very thoughts. We don't even have to say them. In fact, Psalms 138, just to throw out a little... Uh, cross-reference there in Psalms 137, pardon me, it says that he knows our thoughts afar off. You know what that means? He knows our thoughts before we even think them. He knows how you're going to react. He knows what you're going to think about a certain person. He he, uh, he already knows. And Jesus knows our thoughts before we even think them. But the one thing that I want to point out, and I think it's very important for the Christian you know, I, I, again, let me say this too. Um, uh, well, it's really important to notice how polite Jesus is here. Because just the other night, I was going through some of these things where, um, there, you know, it's a, I guess a YouTube somebody sent me about a guy who is a Messianic Jew. And I'm not judging him, but um, he has this ministry to go out on the streets with a bullhorn. He claims that he has this ministry. And I watched two or three of them, and after the third one, I I was so nauseous that I thought, wait a minute. He's argumentative, and a servant of the Lord must never be quarrelsome. He's degrading people, doing it all in the name of Jesus. He's yelling at people, you know. um, And I just thought, I just don't see Jesus doing that. In fact, what the Bible tells us is the love of God is well-mannered. I'm sorry I didn't get the, uh, the reference point there for you, so look it up and highlight it in your Bible. Because God has never called us to be disrespectful or to be ill-mannered or to talk down to people. If anything, we've got to be willing, just like our Lord, if we have to go into a home of a sinner or the home of a religious person, we do that in order to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? We're never to be judgmental. 
The servant of the Lord must never be judgmental. You know, we do not have the right to say if someone's going to heaven or to hell. It's not our call. But um, again, with all that said, the one thing that I want to point out is that he loves them both. He loves Simon and he loves the woman. Now the woman, she's on the right side of things now. You know. Um, but for Simon, uh, Jesus is going to deal with him. If, if Simon really cared for Jesus, he would have... Well, no, if, let me say that. If Jesus didn't care for Simon, he would have just put on his sandals and left. No, in fact, he would have just left at the door. What? No water for my feet? What? No oil for my head? No kiss of greeting from the head of the house? I'm out of here. Think about if someone, you invited someone over to your house, right? You come up to the door. Now, I didn't know a guy that used to do that to my friends. And he would open the door, look at the person, and walk away. I mean, if that's not being insulted, then nothing will. You know, usually, you know, a person comes and knocks on your door, you know, via the invitation. You say, well, hi, how you doing? A right hand, a fellowship handshake, whatever. I men don't kiss each other. I hope not too much. And uh, you would ask a person to come in. Hey, you want a glass of iced tea? Why don't you sit right here? Dinner's almost ready. And you would engage. Well, that's not the way Simon treated Jesus whatsoever. And if Jesus did not love Simon, he would have bolted right on the onset. But he does care. He cares for Simon very much. And so when Jesus asked, you know, I have a question. It, the literal read was, I ha Simon, I have a question. Would you mind if I ask? It was very polite. And of course he said, say on. He says in verse 41, he gives this parable, right? And a parable is a familiar story lined alongside of a spiritual truth. That's what a parable is. There is a certain creditor which had two debtors and one owed 500 pence. You, your, your Bible might say denarii. And the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Now, let's stop there for a second. A, a pence is equivalent to a for a blue-collar worker, about a day's wage. So what you have here is 500 denarii or pence. That's about a year and a half worth of wages compared to a little less than two months of wage. So one owes 500, the other owes, you know, 50. Uh, the, the amount does vary, right? But there is one thing that is identical, and that is both are unpayable. No, unpayable is not a word. But they both can't be paid, right? So that's one thing that's in common here. The matter if the rich could pay or the poor, they were both uh, in debt. They have nothing to pay with. Now, of course, the, the application for you and I, the, the equivalent of sin, no matter if you were a great sinner or whether you were a, a, a moral sinner, <laughs> whatever, you're still a sinner. You know, I love messing with people sometimes. <laughs> You know, when someone, well, he's not a very good Christian. Really? He's not a good Christian opposed to a bad Christian? I mean, and I get what they're trying to say, but I want the, the, the spiritual, the, a Christian is a Christian. You're either born again or you're not. You might be not doing so good, but, and you might, someone might be doing better. But you can't say he's a good Christian, he's a bad Christian. You can say that about dogs. 
He's a bad dog. He's a good dog. But well, really, they're both dogs, right? It's never going to meow. But they both had nothing to pay with. So Jesus, again, finishing verse 42, he says, so tell me, here's the question. Which one would love him more or the most? And so Simon answers and he said, well, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said, thou has rightly judged. So now Jesus is going to apply this parable to her and to also Simon. Verse 47, just to jump a little ahead, a little, uh, ahead her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And that's the reason she loves me so much. That's the reason she came in with this spike nard. She knows how much she has been forgiven and that I'm able and capable and willing to forgive. And therefore, she's going to take the most valuable thing that she owes, her possession. And she's willing to anoint me with that. On the other hand, to whom little is forgiven, they don't worship that much. They, they love little. And what he is saying to Simon is what you have been watching in this woman isn't what it seems, Simon. You have misjudged. It's not about a prostitute expressing a weird desire towards a rabbi or towards a prophet. No, what you have been witnessing is a forgiven sinner expressing love and adoration and in hope. That's what you have been Witnessing, Simon, you think you're better than this woman, but you're not. You're not at all any better. And the way he exposes this to him is through a false superiority. And he uses hospitality to make his point. Look what he says in verse 44. He turned to the woman and said to Simon, seest thou woman? I entered into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet. You know, and I'm sorry, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. See, in that culture, man, when you came into someone's house, there was always water for the feet. There was always a kiss of greeting from the head of the house. And at times, most of the times, there was always oil for your body. Now, some have said through mannerisms and customs and some commentaries that I have read, sometimes it's just for a fragrance. You would come in and uh, like if Harvey came over to visit me, I would just say, hey, Harvey, it's great to see. I would give him a Christmas greeting. I would put a little oil on his, ha- and, uh, his head and he would smell this fragrance and he would think, man, I am so welcome under this roof. You didn't give me any kind of welcome at all is what Jesus is saying. You give me the water to wash my feet, crying out loud. I got animal dung on my feet. You didn't even give me a kiss of greeting. You didn't shake my hand. You didn't give me a hug. You didn't do anything. This is an insult. He knew it, and the people in that room knew it. And so, again, what we see in verse 47. Just to kind of repeat it again. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And she loves much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Loveth little. He doesn't even show hospitality. He thinks he's all better than that. He thinks he's beyond her. He thinks that, you know, I would never let a woman like that touch me. And yet, to the Son of God, 
he wouldn't give a little oil a kiss. See, it doesn't matter to God whether it's 500 denarii or 50. He loves the same. But notice the reaction from the others sitting in the room. Verse 49, And they that sat at meat with them began to say within themselves, or with him began to say, Who is this? Uh, who is this that forgives sin also? They were protesting Jesus' claim there that she's forgiven. They think in their minds, and we read this at several places in the New Testament, that only God can forgive sin and God alone. And again, it is a declaration that Jesus is more than just a rabbi or a good man or a good teacher, that he did have the power and the authority, the exousia from God to say to someone, your sins have been forgiven you. I want you to notice, too, as we try to close this out, this woman is not forgiven and going to heaven on the basis of her love or her worship. It's not. If you read that carefully, her forgiveness, her assurance of heaven is on the basis of faith and faith alone. She is forgiven because of her faith is what Jesus is saying. Because she has this faith and because of her forgiveness, she adores him all the more. For by, the Bible says, for by grace you have been saved, but it is only through faith. I love how he says to her, go in peace. It's a benediction. Go in peace. But the literal read to this, if I can just have your attention for a second, so important and so applicable to so many. Where he says, go in peace, it literally reads, go, uh, go in peace. It literally reads, go into peace. And what he is saying to her at this point in time is, you're not going to find any peace in this house. And you're not going to find any peace in religion or in their interpretation of the law. You have found peace, so go into it and walk in peace. There's got to be a peace in a believer's heart then, or within one, one always will question, am I right with God? But when you know the peace that surpasses all human understanding, even in the midst of your struggle, there is a peace that you can walk into and stay in His peace and not question your salvation. Fall into legalism. I'm not saying you're not saved, but if you fall into legalism, you will not experience God's peace. Fall into the traditions of men. Fall into Calvary Chapelism, whatever that is. You will not find peace. Peace comes in comes to one who recognizes Jesus and who is willing to give their most valuable possession. And for today, let me say that's your heart. That's your heart. You give him your heart and you'll have peace. Oh, I'm already, I've already done that. I said, Lord, come into my heart. Yeah, but did you know to give your heart to Jesus, if it's not done on a daily basis, you can fall into a lot of trials and Heartache Every day, Lord, I give you this heart. Doesn't the Bible say to guard your heart from out of it flows the issues of life? In Proverbs. Look. I don't want to cut anything short, but there's two lessons here that I want you to take home. Maybe even more for some of you, I don't know. 
but one we must never, ever, 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 ever allow the greatness of our sinful past to keep us from coming to Jesus. And it does that from time to time. The enemy is the accuser of the brethren, amen? He's always dredging up our past and always trying to throw it into our face and reminding of us of the hideousness, some of us more than others. And sometimes that just keeps us from approaching God, coming into a more perfect sanctuary where we can call him all Why? Well, man, when I was in my BC days, Harry, I... I, I, th- I know God's forgiven me, but I can't just God. No, you can. It's a lie from Satan. Once God says you are forgiven, he takes all your sins, past, present, future. He throws them into a place. I know you hear this a million times a year from me, but he puts them in a place where they'll never be able to be dredged up again. He takes them and he throws them as far as the east as from the west. Why? Because he never wants to remember them again, according to prophet Jeremiah. Your sins I will not remember anymore we bring them up to ourselves I think sometimes I'm my worst enemy the second thing is for those that might be here today and maybe you you think in your heart well I'm not really the woman the great sinner the prostitute that's really not me I've been raised in a pretty good home, you know, great parents. I've always tried to do the moral things. You kind of have that Simon mentality. Hey, and God bless you if that is you. I mean, uh, uh, not too many of us can say that. But, but what Jesus is trying to teach us here is that a good moral person is no better than a great sinner of the streets. You still have one little problem as a moral person. And that is just one little mess up. One little bad thought. One little lie. One little out of control anger. You have disqualified yourself from heaven. That's how wicked sin is. Sin can take someone and lead them into a lifestyle of debauchery and destruction like this dear woman. And other debauchery and destruction spiritually lead them into a good moral life. Just one mess up. Sin is so powerful it disqualifies people from heaven. It also shows us how holy holy God is and how holy heaven is. And again, how wicked our sin is. Now listen. It's very hard for a Simon to accept the fact that they're just not good enough. But God does not grade on the curve. (laughs) He doesn't. It is hard for a moral person To accept this truth. In fact, sometimes it's just a stumbling block. Are you telling me someone who has walked the streets of Camden, who is a prostitute, if she finds hope in Christ, she's just as saved as me that's been raised in a very religious and a very moral home? Yeah, that's what Jesus is teaching us. 
And that is a stumbling block to a lot of people. Now, I think that what makes sense out of those two thoughts is that it's this. There are some who receives Christ, receives that hope, receives that prior to coming to Christ. She had hope welled up in her life before she came to Christ. She knew if she could get there with this ointment, she knew there was faith in her. If I could just present this valuable possession, if I, that's prior to him, her coming to Christ. Then there are the, uh, others who experience this hope and gratitude after they come to Christ. But they're both still the same. One is a very wicked and sinful person. The other is a very moral person. But they come to this same place. Case in point is Paul the Apostle. Paul the Apostle. And if I could just read this in closing. And Rich, if you'll make your way out. It says this, for we are, we are the circumcision which worship God in spirit and truth. We rejoice in Jesus Christ. We have no confidence of the flesh. Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if any man thinketh himself he hath whereof that he might trust in the flesh. In other words, if anyone wants to boast, I can outdo them, is what Paul is saying here. And he tells why. I'm circumcised on the eighth day, the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, touching the law. I'm a Pharisee. Just like Pharisee Simon here. Touching the law and the Pharisees. Concerning zeal. Hey, I persecuted the church. Touching the uh, righteousness which is of the law. I am blameless. Talk about a good and upright moral man. Paul the apostle. He was not seeking for hope. He was not seeking for justification. No, he didn't get that until after he met Christ on the road to Damascus. When he met Christ, he was bent on killing the church, persecuting the church. It wasn't afterwards. So those, there are those who discover they need love and, and hope and forgiveness. And they find it at the cross. After the cross, there are those who discover the same thing. But they still need the cross, right? If you don't think that verse, kind of those verses there supports that thought. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is a faithful saying and, and worthy of all uh, exception. He says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinner in which I am the worst. He discovered so much after he came to Christ. Oh, there he is. You know, I was praying about this, guys. You know, I like... like I like to always wrap out, um, wrap up a teaching with uh, with just an encouragement, you know, and, uh, and a challenge to pray about something in in the Word. I couldn't come up with anything today, you know, and then it just dawned on me how that if we're not careful, we can all fall into the same trap. Of thinking that we're better than another person. Of thinking that I don't need to give God any more than what I've already given him. I don't think there's any limit. There's not an end to us just totally surrendering to Christ. Not being a Simon worrying about whether Jesus 
is going to rebuke somebody, if Jesus is going to allow to touch him. But to be who you are and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart, my heart, am I a Simon? Am I a Simon? Am I, do I have pharisaic tendencies, thinking I'm better than somebody else? There was a time years ago where that just didn't enter into the Christian mind. There was a move of God in the 60s and the 70s. And we never thought it would be wrong to reach out and touch an untouchable, as it were. There wasn't a time where we would let anybody go hungry. There wasn't any time we would let somebody walk any great distance to get to their destination. That we were Christ and we were Christ-like and we wanted to display his love, his adoration, his acceptance of everyone. And right now, the church is failing at that, Christendom. We're more concerned about our shows and more concerned about, I don't want this to be condemning. There's therefore now what? No condemnation to those in Christ, but there is exhortation to be exhorted. So I'm exhorting you today. Let's stand together. Don't fall into that Simon mentality. Remember this dear woman. You're going to see her in heaven. What are you going to say to her? (laughs) Man, you're one of my heroes. There's a lot of women up there, guys, that I just can't wait to see. She's one. Mary Magdalene's another. Mary, the mother of Jesus. You know, in that culture too, guys, women were just looked down on. Women didn't have any rights. They weren't even allowed at that triclinium. Did you know that? Women weren't allowed to eat at the dinner table. They would have dinner by themselves somewhere with their kids. Liberation in the 60s didn't set women free, ladies. Jesus did 2,000 years ago. I love you guys. I'll let Richie close out.